Good morning. Our first case is AJLH, CALW, and MJLH, and we will hear from the appellant. Good morning, Mr. Chief Justice Newby and Associate Justices. My name is Mercedes Chutt, and I'm arguing today on behalf of the Guilford County Department of Health and Human Services. My colleague, Mr. Wunsch, Mr. Matthew Wunsch, will be arguing on behalf of the guardian ad litem. I would like to uh, use 15 minutes for my principal argument, and um, Mr. Wunsch, I believe, is gonna use 10 minutes, and then we'd like to reserve five minutes for rebuttal. Now, um, let me just start with the facts of this case, which are not in dispute. So in this case, um, the social worker, the, the, the Department of Social Services, I'm just gonna call it the department, received a report that the child, Margaret, who at that time was nine, um, had marks on her back um, and had said that she had been beaten with a belt. Um, the child said she was afraid and that the report was essentially abuse and inappropriate discipline. That was on May the 21st, um, 2019. The next day, on May the 22nd, 2019, the department received another report. Um, according to that report, um, there was another mark on Margaret's back and that she was terrified of going home, was cowering under the desk um, at her guidance counselor's office. So according to the reports, basically there were then four marks on Margaret's back at that time. Now, the social workers, uh, the department investigated that report by sending the social worker Joyce out to the school on May the 22nd um, 2019, and she found the child under the guidance counselor's desk. She had to coach her out. She found that the child looked nervous. She did observe the marks on Margaret's back consistent with the report. Margaret then added other details to the report. So Margaret, then, at that point, the social worker interviewed Margaret, and Margaret said that there were other disciplinary practices going on in the home. She described um, being made to eat crunchy peanut butter sandwiches because she did not like them and she said she had to eat them instead of eating where the family ate food-wise. And she also said that she was being made to stand in the corner for hours at a time, and that she had to sleep on the bare floor without mattresses, without a mattress, without blankets, without sheets. And so, and she also said her stepfather had beaten her with a belt. And um, so the social worker at that point, with those allegations, which became part of the allegations, the social worker was investigating, which both of the parents, um, on the same day, first went to the mother. She admitted all the allegations. Went to the father, he, the stepfather, that is. He admitted all the allegations. And that's very central to this case because the allegations, I think, were never in dispute. The parents admitted them. At the adjudicatory hearing, which produced the order on appeal, the parents did not present any evidence. Now, the Court of Appeals, this goes to the Court of Appeals. Um, you know, I think there's an issue of why are we at the Court of Appeal? Why are we appealing this? Why do we file the PDR? We're alleging there are several errors of law. One, not recognizing the admissions of a party opponent. The trial court's findings, rather than being inadequate, actually track what happened. Here are the allegations, not hearsay, out-of-court statements, not used for hearsay purpose, used to show subsequent conduct are not an admissible hearsay. Um, then after the statements were presented to the parents, the respondents here, they admitted the allegations. Trial court's order tracks this. Um, after that, um, the, the, the order, what happened in the evidence was, um, Margaret was removed on um, May the 22nd. The two younger children, Anna, four months old, 
and um, Chris, three and a half years old, were remained in the home until August the 9th, um, 2019, when a petition was filed and, and a non-secure custody order entered. And what the record evidence shows is that they were removed from the home on August the 9th because even though there had not been evidence, there had not been any instances of inappropriate discipline with respect to those two younger children, the parents, both the respondents, continued to assert there was nothing wrong with their disciplinary practices. So, you know, I think this is a really a clear-cut case where um, what happened in the Court of Appeals was the Court of Appeals thought that there was inadmissible hearsay and essentially did not recognize the operation of the admission of a party opponent. Um, the Court of Appeals appeared to hold in its opinion that no party, that that the no party had specifically stated admission of a party opponent. And, you know, I just submit to that there's an error of law because the rules of evidence are not permissive. It's not as if the trial court grants permission to use the, the rules of evidence. They apply across the board. To what extent should this court get involved in here? The, to what extent should this court get involved in uh, parents' decisions to administer corporal punishment uh, and measure to what extent it has gone uh, in terms of whether or not it has gone too far, especially in terms of what the Court of Appeals said, that although that there were marks that were left here on Margaret, that they were temporary in nature. Okay, so that's really the crux of the argument here, and I just wanted to address the hearsay first. But basically, this isn't a case about corporal punishment. This case is not hold, it's not, it's not the position of the department that a parent cannot spank their child on the bottom with their bare hand. It's not a position of the department that if you spank your child on the bottom with, your, with a, your, the front of your hand that, um, you know, cause temporary red marks, that that's abuse. The, the case law is you have to look at the, the totality of the evidence. There's no minimum threshold for abuse. What you have here, and the parents admitted that they had used all of these disciplinary practices that I, that I described, whippings with belts, um, either forcing the child to eat crunchy peanut butter sandwiches or using them in lieu of meals, standing in a corner for hours on end, up to three, four hours at a time, um, and sleeping on the bare floor. And this had been going on for about two months, according to the stepfather and according to the mother, about every day um, since March of 2019. So you look at the whole totality of the evidence, and that's the standard in our case law. The totality of the evidence, there's no minimum threshold for what constitutes abuse. And I'm arguing that under these circumstances, that with the totality of the evidence is, is abuse. But to answer your question, it is not a case of the state coming in and saying, it's not our argument that, that people can't use corporal punishment. This, that was not the argument of the, of the department at the trial level. Um, I don't think anyone made that argument. It's not the argument, it was not the argument before the Court of Appeals, it's not the argument now. It's the Court of Appeals position, as I recall it, that taking these incidents of the crunchy peanut butter sleeping on the floor, the corporal punishment, either individually or collectively, they did not amount, assuming that they were true based upon the hearsay aspect, uh, did not rise to a level of being a serious uh, physical injury. Uh, when you say this case is not about corporal punishment, are you saying that we should not focus at all in our outcome here uh, on the fact that corporal punishment was administered and move on and look collectively at all of it? Correct. Correct. And, and let me go back to your statement about what the Court of Appeals said. So this is really the heart of why we're appealing this. The Court of Appeals actually held in its um, opinion that um, all of these facts alone, um, the, um, they called it corporal punishment. 
And it wasn't corporal punishment, actually. This is where, you know, I think the Court of Appeals stepped into the role of the trial court, sort of making findings of fact. The, 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 evidence, the, the findings in the, the trial court's findings talked about a whipping with a belt, not, quote, corporal punishment. I don't think you're going to find that in the opinion. Um, but just to simply say that a whipping with a belt and all the other collective fa facts can never constitute abuse or neglect is just is erroneous as a matter of law. It really sort of tosses out, I think, well-established precedent on the law of abuse and the law of neglect. Neglect, as we all know, you don't, you don't select out bright-line things or acts of the parents. A case law is well-established, like in Ray Montgomery, in Ray MAW, that you have to look at the circumstances surrounding the child, not the acts of the parents. Um, in terms of abuse, there is, again, like I said, you have to look at the totality of the evidence. You have to, there's no bright-line standard for abuses, no minimum standard. And what the Court of Appeals did in this case is they actually ignored the statute of abuse, because if you look at 7B um, 101A, sorry, 101A through C, there are three different types of abuse, okay? Um, prong A is that the parent intentionally causes um, serious bodily injury, or serious physical injury, sorry, it's physical injury, that's an important distinction. Intentionally causes serious physical injury. B is um, there's a substantial likelihood or risk of serious physical injury. And C is grossly inappropriate disciplines or measures, disciplines or procedures to modify behavior. Now, the Court of Appeals seemed to analyze this only under um, A. And if you look at that statement that you just read, um, Justice Morgan, um, of the Court of Appeals, a quote from the opinion, um, the opinion says that um, corporal punishment can never be serious physical injury. Well, that's ignoring you know, can, again, it wasn't corporal punishment, it was a whipping with the belt. So it's ignoring whether a whipping with a belt can be abuse under C, um, grossly inappropriate devices or procedures to modify behavior. And can, sorry to interrupt you, but just the, the trial court's order doesn't specify which, whether it was A, B, or C, that it was finding um, constitute abuse here, right? I mean, that is, that is correct, it is I, not. And does that, does that matter? I don't believe so because, I mean, this is just, so whether or not um, abuse is established is a conclusion, conclusion of law, and this court can look at that de novo to see whether the, um, is a conclusion of law. So, for example, so if the findings of fact support that conclusion, I don't think you have to spell out which element of um, abuse it is. And, and if I can turn to another question I have, which is um, what evidence in the record or what findings of fact in particular support the adjudication that the other two children in the home, I believe we're using the pseudonyms Chris and Anna, what findings of fact demonstrate that they were neglected? Right, so Chris and Anna, um, I mean the, the case law is that there have to be other circumstances that show present risk of harm and the findings there that, I, that support that are findings that neither parent, um, the mother specifically endorsed her disciplinary proceedings at a child and family team meeting um, that occurred right before the petitions were filed. And that's one of the reasons why the petitions were filed. That's in finding number 14. Uh, the, the stepfather, um, he never, um, he, he initially said that he thought the dis disciplinary actions were um, appropriate, completely appropriate. Never, I mean, initially never stated that he saw anything wrong with them. And then he never, contradicted that, um, that, that position. 
And I think that the appellees have argued in their briefs that the father, well, that Mr. Haas is his name, the father of one of the children. Mr. Haas signed a safety plan and didn't violate it. The safety plan is not in the record. So I think those arguments lack merit for that reason. But again, I think the trial court is a judge of the evidence. The trial court looked at the evidence and felt that there was not sufficient evidence that these parents, the respondents would not do this again. So it falls under the rubric of NRAJAM, where you have prior neglect and you have the parent not willing to, well, the parent in JAM really didn't seem to even understand why her parental rights had been terminated to other children. It was domestic violence and she didn't seem to recognize that. And this is the same sort of situation. My argument is the failure of the parents to show any recognition that those disciplinary actions were inappropriate. So you're saying that the fact that his case plan, that he agreed to a case plan and that in that case plan he agreed not to discipline the other two children, that that's not, I'm not clear what you're saying about the status of that agreement in his case plan. There is no agreement in the record that he entered into a case plan post-petition. The adjudicatory evidence, which is what I'm discussing now, only goes up to the date of the filing of the petition. So if the adjudication is based on the evidence and events occurring up to the date of the filing of the petition, why would the parents' subsequent statements that they thought what they were doing was appropriate, why would that then be relevant to the adjudication? Because these parents had two and a half months to basically tell the department to renounce their disciplinary methods and to show some sort of recognition that they were not appropriate and they did not do that the entire time. So you're saying the fact that they may have done that later is not relevant? Well, according to our statutes, it is not because I think it's 804, 7B804, I believe, that states that the adjudication, the evidence, I mean the allegations of petition have to be determined and it's very clear there's a lot of case law on that, that adjudication, you can't consider post-petition evidence on neglect and abuse. And that's just an interpretation of our statute. So it's not up to me to say, you know, it's not, I think, something that the trial court can just say, yes, it's relevant, I'll hear it. The statute especially prohibits it. And I think one thing I think is really important here is that the trial court, I mean the Court of Appeals, really just did not seem to understand the law of abuse or neglect. You know, one of the things that the Court of Appeals did is say that finding 26, which talked about whether or not the father had decided not to or had said anything about not, about finding these disciplinary actions inappropriate, they called it an arbitrary presumption of a forecast. And in finding 26, the trial court was trying to assess risk of harm. What is the future risk of harm? Which is totally appropriate and necessary in a neglect case. And I think the Court of Appeals seemed to hold that that was inappropriate. I'm done with my 15 minutes. So, any other questions? Thank you. Thank you, counsel. We'll hear from counsel for the GAL. Thank you. 
Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, my name is Matt Wunsch. I'm appellate counsel for the Guardian Ad Litem Program, and I represent the children in this case. I just want to pick up, sort of jump in on some of the same points uh, that, that the court discussed with, with Ms. Chutt. Um, one, to point out, Justice Morgan, on your corporal punishment question, um, the case that the Court of Appeals relies on, Scott versus Scott, um, to say that you know, corporal or a spanking that only leaves temporary bruising can never constitute physical abuse, is, is not accurately summarized or, or utilized in the opinion. The facts of Scott are, are readily distinguishable. Um, Scott was a civil case, it was a custody complaint where one parent was trying to get a change of custody um, against the other parent and part of what the parent alleged was that the other parent had abused the child by, by striking and leaving marks and lost that motion, appealed it, and then argued that the trial court erred because it should have been compelled to make a finding that those bruises constituted abuse. This is actually the exact opposite. This is a trial court that adjudicated that a child who'd been struck with a belt and the other conditions that we talked about was abused. And then the Court of Appeals on appeal decided that that was not abuse. So instead of being compelled to make a finding, the trial court here actually made a finding on its own. And then the Court of Appeals is trying to compel it to not make that finding. So it's really the opposite. Scott does not stand for this broad, um, holding that marks or, or um, striking a child and leaving marks that are not permanent is not abuse, is never abuse. It's not a minimum standard. It's just saying in this particular case, the trial court was not compelled to make a finding that it was abuse. And that's what we're arguing for. We're arguing that the trial court, the fact finder, had that discretion to view the evidence, to evaluate the whole situation, and to make findings of fact as the, as the fact finder trial court. Um, subsequent Court of Appeals cases have clarified that some, and I know they're not binding on this, this court, but NRA LTR, um, which was a 2007 case that involved bruising, NRA SG is another case that involved bruising that dealt with this same argument, um, that that the most serious injuries are not the minimum standard, that abuse can occur without broken bones or cigarette burns or some of the worst facts that we see, that that should not be the minimum standard. And I think that's a really important legal point that the, that the Court of Appeals missed here. Can uh, we distill what you're saying in terms of this then that the Court of Appeals engaged in uh, fact finding that of course would not be appropriate? That, that is our contention, Your Honor, that, that the Court of Appeals stepped outside the lane of doing de novo review, which would be taking the facts as found by the trial court that are supported by the evidence, because there isn't really a dispute about what the evidence is, um, and engaged in its own analysis of whether that should be abuse or not. That there's a difference between just applying the law to the facts and deciding what to believe and how to weigh it. Um, those are two different processes. One is for the trial court, and that is what the trial court did. De novo review is what the Court of Appeals is supposed to do. And it, it got outside of that role here. Um, you know, again, I point the court to LTR and SG. Again, they're just it, sort of persuasive authority, not binding authority, I understand, to this court. But I think the, the analysis and the reasoning in those cases is very persuasive. One other point I wanted to emphasize on this part of the, the briefs 
is this theme that runs through, I think, the Court of Appeals opinion and, and pops up in the parents' briefs to this court that Margaret bore some responsibility here. Um, that, in fact, in the mother's brief, it's page 23 of the brief, she argues that Margaret was a preteen who was acting out and lying and that the discipline was specific to her and her misbehavior. That's a troubling argument to me, especially on these facts. Um, you know, the mother's rationale for why Margaret was treated that way is that, well, we wanted to show her what prison would be like. I would put to the court, you can't treat a prisoner like this. You can't deprive a prisoner food. You can't, uh, prison officials can't beat a prisoner with a belt. They can't make the prisoner stand for hours on end in a corner. These are not, they can't deny the prisoner a place to sleep. These are not acceptable conditions for, for even that rationale, as, as frankly thin as it is. So I think that's a really important point. It, it concerns me to see it argued in briefs um, that, that Margaret, the nine-year-old, would, would bear responsibility here. The use of the word preteen to me is, is troubling. She's not 11 or 12. When this happened, she was nine. Um, that may be a, a finer distinction, but it sticks out to me. It seems like it's trying to downplay the parent's role in what happened and, and put responsibility on Margaret. And again, as a child advocate, that's very concerning. Uh, we'll try to move on from those issues. Justice Earls, I'm well, sorry, you have a I question? think I was going where you're going. I do want to ask about the evidence in the record regarding the other two children and, and what supports a finding that they were neglected. And in particular, as I understand the facts, um, the, 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 the incident involving Margaret happened in May. Um, she, the other two children remained in the home until the petition was filed in early August of 2019. And there were home visits. And it, it, it just seems like without any evidence specific to those children, you know, you can hypothetically, you could imagine um, that they also uh, had bruising or they were disciplined or they showed emotional distress from having witnessed their older, uh, older sibling uh, treated the way the record shows she was. You, you can, it seems to me there could be facts that would illustrate their neglect. But here, it sounds like the only evidence in the record that the department is resting on is, is whether the parents acknowledge that the discipline of Margaret was inappropriate. Well, Your Honor, I think it's, it's that certainly is an important fact. I think the absence of evidence of physical abuse on the other children is not dispositive um, because, again, it's about a substantial risk of harm. So harm does not already have to have occurred to them in that time. And I don't believe there was any allegation that it had. But it is, as Your Honor points out, it's the, the parents' insistence that they did nothing wrong, that this is appropriate discipline for them to use and then it's, I think, the history, which with Margaret goes back to 2010 and the findings of fact, um, that there is a history of this conduct in respondent mother's home uh, with different partners. It's very much, as, as Ms. Chut pointed out, it's very much like JAM. It's a very similar case where um, other children in the care of that parent have been hurt. And the risk is that the parent doesn't seem to understand that their conduct puts their children at risk. Well, there were other factors in JAM relating to the parents giving explanations for the injuries that were not medically possible, so some indication of deception and, and 
um, evidence about the extent to which they were complying with the case plan. So, so those are other factors that I, that are different. Those factors aren't present in this case. The parents didn't the, um, deny the what they were doing. They admitted it. They just didn't think there was anything wrong with it. Well, and in some ways, it's in even more troubling, I think, from our point of view, that the parents are openly acknowledging, yes, this is how we discipline our child, and we don't see any problem with it. So I think it's harder to expect a parent, or at least no less difficult to me, to expect a parent who says that is going to change their ways than it is for a parent who is, is being deceptive and trying to cover it up. Um, they are they're very upfront in their statements to the social worker Yes, we did this. I mean, the respondent father acknowledges he used the belt. They acknowledge all those other disciplinary techniques, and they don't, they don't see any problem, even with CPS talking to them about what happened and the fact that there's the possibility of a petition being filed. They don't see any problem with that. So that, I, I don't, Your Honor, respectfully, I don't think that mitigates the concern here. In fact, if anything, I think it enhances it, that these parents who don't see a problem and are very upfront about that are gonna to continue to act that way. Um, and you know, it, it bears noting, I think, that the, the 2010 history with Margaret, you know, part of mother's explanation is, well, the baby is innocent, I wouldn't do these things to the baby. Margaret was four months old when that happened, in 2010. So that explanation is not very persuasive that was the trial court's call to make. It was not persuaded by it, and the Court of Appeals should not have disturbed that determination. I can see that I'm running into our rebuttal time. If the court has no further questions, I would like to reserve the remainder of our time for rebuttal. Thank you, counsel. Thank you. We'll hear from the appellee. Good morning, may it please the court. <clears throat> My name is Benjamin Call. I have the honor and privilege today of representing Mr. Cameron Haas, who's here with us, the respondent father of one of the three children, the youngest, Anna. Uh, a bit of housekeeping, uh, Ms. Rawls, who represents the respondent mother, who's the mother to all three children, will be dividing our time in half. Uh, Ms. Rawls will be addressing all of the arguments about the abuse and neglect allegations regarding Margaret, the oldest one. And I'll be focusing my argument on the neglect adjudication for the younger two children. Recognize my, my client is only the father of one, but the circumstances and arguments for the two youngest are identical. I believe Ms. Rawls will adopt these arguments as her own uh, regarding her client's uh, child, Chris. We have to start at the beginning with understanding what the standard of review is, right? We're here on this court's grant of a petition for discretionary review. And the rules of appellate procedure are very clear that when we're doing this type of review, the court is looking for one thing and one thing only. And that is whether the Court of Appeals committed any error of law in its judgment. My client has been waiting 25 months for the government to come up with any coherent explanation of how that could possibly be true regarding his daughter's adjudication. Their briefs don't argue any viable error of law in the ruling regarding Margaret. They have not explained any error of law today in the Court of Appeals ruling regarding Margaret. When the Court of Appeals, I'm sorry, regarding Anna, when the Court of Appeals concluded that the neglect adjudication for Anna 
had to be reversed. The Court of Appeals applied well-established precedent to a very basic set of facts to conduct a routine analysis, the same type of routine analysis that's been conducted by other courts in other similar cases to reach the same conclusion that's been reached in other cases. And that conclusion is very straightforward. A child's neglect adjudication cannot be based entirely on a sibling's circumstances. Right? There have to be findings of fact about other circumstances, other factors regarding this child, findings of fact about Anna's circumstances that explain why Anna is a neglected juvenile. And I believe their answer would be that she is at risk of neglect because he has not acknowledged that the discipline was inappropriate. Correct, Your Honor. So we have to look, right, if, if we're looking at whether the Court of Appeals committed error, like the Court of Appeals was charged with looking at the findings of fact to determine whether those findings of fact supported the conclusion of law. So what do the findings of fact tell us about this, what they call this lack of acknowledgement, right? There is one clause in finding 26. I'll read the first two sentences. Cameron Haas acknowledged the circumstances that arose on May 21st, 2019, when this first began. However, he did not feel that those actions of discipline, of discipline were inappropriate. Absolutely true, right? The reports came in from the school, apparently. Margaret was scared about going home. She, uh, DSS gets involved, talks to the parents. The parents acknowledge what they did. They weren't hiding anything. And of course they would think that what they were doing was appropriate. Why would they do it unless they thought it was appropriate, right? So the fact that from day one, they didn't immediately see a problem with what they were doing isn't the question, right? The question is then thereafter, if DSS saw a problem, and apparently they did, right? The testimony uh, from the one witness at the hearing, uh, in her words, the social worker said that she told the parents from the beginning that what they had done was, quote, a little bit extreme, right? A little bit extreme. Well, what was a little bit extreme, right? Yes, she got a whooping with a belt that left a mark. But yes, they also didn't let her go play outside. They restricted her TV time. Right? So what was a little bit extreme? Should she been able to go play outside a little bit? Right? If she's made to go stand in a corner, is, well, how long is too long standing in a corner? Surely we can still send kids to time out, right? So how long is too long? Right? So if, if their concern was narrowing down and, and really talking to these parents about what they did was wrong, well then there's no evidence in the record that shows they even bothered to have those conversations, right? If you look in the transcript, you'll see the social worker saying something along the lines of, well, uh, they could have gone, looked it up online to figure out what appropriate discipline is, right? So if this is really about them sort of expressing enough contrition and remorse, then there has to be some indication that the social worker or DSS or somebody sat down and said, all right, here's a long list of what you did, right? And that list includes restricting TV time, all right? But here's where we think you crossed the line, right? And there's nothing in the record that shows that they ever had that meaningful conversation, right? They, they, they got involved from the beginning and much like, unlike in JAM, and there are many points of distinction with JAM, but this is an important one, in JAM, the parents refused to work with social services, 
right? Complete opposite here, right? From day one, the parents were cooperative. From day one, they entered this voluntary safety plan, and yes, the plan is not in the record. <coughs> For whatever reason, it wasn't introduced. There's plenty of testimony about it in the record. And what that testimony shows is that they voluntarily agreed to it from day one. The two little kids continued living at home for 77 days under this safety plan. Both parents agreed to it. It provided, it specified that they were not to use physical discipline. There were periodic uh, announced and unannounced checks by different social workers over 77 days, and nothing happened. There were no concerns that arose, right? And at the same time, right, you see in the testimony, the social worker explained, well, we didn't take the two younger kids away immediately because we wanted time to gather more information. 77 days, zero new information, right? All these concerns about the history of mom's involvement with other prior DSS reports, they knew that from the beginning, right? The fact that the parents from the very beginning said, well, yeah, of course, we, what we did we thought was appropriate. Why else would we do it if we didn't think it was appropriate? They knew that. Those conversations happened from the very beginning. So 77 days go by. Not a single thing changes. The facts are exactly the same, except for, for reasons that still don't make sense to me, a social worker decided, nope, we've had enough. Uh, they have not, on their own, come forward and expressed enough contrition for God knows what because um, it surely isn't restricting their kids' TV time. And so now we're going to not only file this petition, not only take your children away from you, your three-month-old baby, but then they have the audacity to go, in, go to the court at the adjudication hearing and say that these parents should have zero visits with their parents. A three-month-old baby to whom nothing has happened, for whom there is no evidence of any risk of harm, we're going to take that baby from its parents, and we're going to ask the court to deny all visitation, not even supervised visitation, on a weekly, you know, one hour a week basis, zero. So is it the father's position based upon what the trial court found with regard to Margaret and extrapolating that to Anna? Is it the father's position that corporal punishment here was okay and that the even broader scope of the administered punishment to Margaret was okay. That the, okay in what sense? Here? Okay in the sense that it was not uh, excessive, that it did not constitute serious physical injury and that there was not clear and convincing evidence of such. I don't think there's any doubt that there was, there was no clear and convincing evidence of, of serious physical injury because the only evidence of any injury we have is the social workers, well, and I'll defer to Ms. Rawls, Your Honor, because you know, the Court of Appeals ruled that we lack standing to challenge Margaret's adjudication. So for that reason, Ms. Rawls is much more prepared to discuss it than And I that's have. why I put it in the context yeah. of extrapolating it to Anna in terms of what was deemed right. to make her neglected. Right, well, as, in far as, to the extent it relates to Anna's adjudication, Your Honor, I think the important point to make there is that all of my arguments about Anna are the same even if Margaret's adjudications are affirmed, right? Because that's what the clear case law says. That's what JCB, as this court you know, endorsed it in JAM, that's what it says. Even if you have an adjudication, you have neglect or abuse of a sibling in the household, you have to look beyond the facts related to that abuse and neglect to determine whether there are other circumstances showing neglect of the other child in the household. Well, the trial court was making a forecast of 
what risk Anna faced in terms of what happened to Margaret. All this in the trial court's view, of course. But in terms of, again, looking towards what was deemed by the trial court to put Anna at risk so as to make her neglected, is it the father's position that the punishment of Margaret should not have risen to a level in the trial court's view that made Anna neglected? I apologize, Your Honor. I'm not sure I follow the question. So the, the, the trial court was making a forecast in its findings of fact. I'm referring to finding 26, that where it says, Mr. Haas never disclosed he would not discipline the two youngest ones in the same manner that he had, or that he did not feel his actions were inappropriate. The Court of Appeals says that there's no evidence that Anna or Chris was abused. And based upon what happened to Margaret, that as a result of that, the neglect determination of Anna was inappropriate. You agree with that? Absolutely. I just keep it simple. Absolutely. Do you agree with that? Absolutely. Therefore, are you saying that it was too extreme for there to be a forecast that Anna was at risk in terms of the fact that while there was no evidence of it, why would it be then that the forecast was inappropriate? Because there are no finding, evidentiary findings of fact to support the forecast, right? And JAM is a good point of comparison, right? In JAM, Similar question, predicting risk of future risk of harm for a newborn uh, for whom we have very little you know, direct facts to go off of. Right? In JAM, the parents had multiple prior terminations of parental rights for which they still refused to acknowledge any culpability. Right? Completely different than here. Yes, there, are, there was a finding of fact about prior reports. None of those even resulted in a neglect or abuse adjudication, let alone a termination of parental rights. And there was no indication for these four incidences in the past, I think only two of which were even substantiated by social services to even do any work on them. Two of them were not even substantiated. Uh, there's no indication in the record that anyone refused to acknowledge responsibility. Where, where should this court draw the line in terms of uh, a trial court's uh, predictive determination that what happens to one sibling here, Margaret, mm -hmm. uh, is to be translated to a sibling like Anna in terms of while there's no evidence of abuse of Anna as to where this court should draw the line as to how a trial court should exercise the predictive aspects of determining neglect. I think the line's already been drawn, Your Honor. The line is very clear. And in the line, the system, the status quo we have right now works perfectly fine. There's nothing broken that, that this court needs to fix, right? The law is clear, right? There must be findings of fact that show other factors, right? That's the language that you see repeated in the case law, right? Whether there are findings of fact that show those other factors, whether those findings of fact add up to a proper conclusion of law, that a child is neglected, that is a determination that the, the Court of Appeals, whichever appellate court has the case on direct appeal, they have the authority to exercise de novo review then to substitute their judgment to say, well, yes, we agree. These findings of facts add up to a conclusion of neglect, or they don't, right? The, the direct appeal court has the discretion to make that call. That's what de novo review is. 
right? That's what happened here, right? The Court of Appeals exercised its de novo review to say, well, this is pretty thin, right? We had 77 days, uh, and nothing shows what changed in those 77 days. Yes, the father said on day one he thought he was doing the right thing. Yes, mom has these prior reports in her history. But we knew all that on day one. So after day 77 of there being no problem with these kids living at home, what explains why these kids are neglected juveniles? And the Court of Appeals ex properly exercised its discretion to say, well, that's not neglect. And so the question now is, was there an error of law in that decision by the Court of Appeals? They pointed to none, absolutely none. And they're all explained in my brief. I'm, I see I'm running short on time. Uh, so I would just refer the courts to my brief for a further explanation about why all of what they claim have to be errors of law is absolutely not an error of law. Uh, and in closing, we just say that I think the only appropriate outcome here is for the court to dismiss this petition as having been improvidently granted. Uh, what's true today was true on day one when they filed it. There is no basis for having granted the PDR because none of the three statutory grounds for doing so are present here. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. We'll hear from your co-counsel. Good morning. May it please the court. I'm Leslie Rawls from Charlotte, representing the appellant. Sorry, used to that. Respondent mother <clears throat> in this matter. Uh, there are a number of things we agree on, as I think Ms. Chet said to start with. There are several that we don't. Um, my intention is not to address Chris and Anna. My, as Mr. Uh, Call said, my client is the mother of all three children. The two youngest, Chris and Anna, are in identical positions. So unless the court has more questions, I would adopt Mr. Call's argument as covering both of those <clears throat> excuse me, both of those children on my client's behalf. With respect to Margaret, a couple of things. The Court of Appeals did nothing new, and we're not asking this court to do anything new. They followed precedent. They applied the statute and the case law and found that the findings of fact and the evidence did not support the conclusions of law regarding Margaret that led to the abuse and neglect, <clears throat> excuse me, adjudications. This is, has, as has been said more than once here, a fact-specific inquiry. Some of the facts we agree on, some of them we don't. Uh, for example, Ms. Chet spent a good deal of time talking about hearsay and that the Court of Appeals misapplied the hearsay rule. We have agreed, and I believe the Court of Appeals opinion reflects this, that the hearsay statements by Margaret were, were improperly admitted over objection, I think 10 or 12 objections, and that statements of party opponents are admissible as exceptions to the hearsay rule. There's no disagreement about that. And the Court of Appeals correctly applied the hearsay rule by excluding Margaret's statements <clears throat> and then saying the remaining findings of fact are insufficient to support the conclusions of law adjudicating her neglected and <clears throat> abused. 
so what have we got? Crunchy peanut butter sandwiches. If, if the choice to feed a child food they don't like was grounds to, for a government agency to come in and take that child away, I suspect this courthouse would be empty. Probably all of Raleigh would be empty. Children are fed Brussels sprouts. Children are fed squash, crunchy peanut butter sandwiches, things they don't like. It's part of being a parent. Now, the appellants would have the court believe that that was the only thing she ate. There is nothing in the record to support that. The record says that she was given crunchy peanut butter sandwiches at dinner instead of being given the meal the family was eating as part of a punishment to try to get her to recognize that by lying and cheating, she would wind up in a position where she couldn't make those decisions. Whether she's a preteen or a child, a parent's duty is to discipline and uh, teach their child. And that was a lesson. There is nothing in the record about what she was fed at other meals. And in addition, the department argued to the court today that this had been going on, the crunchy peanut butter sandwiches had been going on since March 2019. That's not what the findings of fact say. The findings of fact say her lying had started around March 2019 and it was getting worse. And in finding of fact, I believe it's 17, the mother says that lately this was the sort of discipline they'd been trying. I'm not sure what lately means, but... Well, if, if I can ask you, the, the statute defines um, an abused juvenile under 1C mm -hmm. as one whose parent, guardian, custodian, or caretaker uses or allows to be used upon the juvenile cruel or grossly inappropriate procedures or cruel or grossly inappropriate devices to modify behavior. And as I understand um, the DSS and GL's argument, they're, not, they're saying that not, you know, you can talk about each individual element, but it, that it's the constellation of all of the behave, all of the treatment that the parents admit, um, as a statement of a party opponent, that the parents admit that they, so it's not just the um, discipline regarding what she ate, it was also, you know, making her stand in, uh, up um, where she slept, uh, and that the um, corporal punishment was happening every day, that it was the, the cumulative effect of all of those um, uh, forms of punishment that constitute the grossly inappropriate procedures. So what's your response to that? I, Your Honor, I think that there are a couple of factual distinctions there. Where she slept, there's nothing in the record about her sleeping on the bare floor other than one hearsay statement um, where she says she slept with no covers. Uh, so the the cumulative effect of these things is insufficient to constitute cruel and unusual, uh, grossly inappropriate discipline. Well, the, the in, in, so I'm looking now at finding of fact 15, which is where the trial court recites what the, um, par what the respondent parent parent says, what your client says, and she says that she takes the juvenile's bed privileges away, she stands in the corner from 3.30 p.m. to 6 p.m., That um, and then after she she stands in, uh, again in the corner until 8 p.m., she has to sleep on the floor. 
Um, so, so those are things that she's admitting happened. Yes, Your Honor, and, but it does not say bare floor. It, and children, children make tents out of sheets and dining room tables all the time, and then they and their friends or siblings sleep on the floor. The uh, time that she spends in the corner, I'm not sure this court can draw a line and say that parents should only be allowed to send their children to the corner for 30 minutes, 45 minutes, five minutes, an hour. There are some things that parents get to decide. And while that seems like a long time, I'm not sure it's the role of this court to step in and say that uh, that's too long. And looking at them cumulatively, cumulatively the, this child was disciplined a lot. Her behavior, the parents felt, was serious enough to re, uh, require that discipline. Uh, the root of the word discipline, I'm, I believe, has, comes from the same root as the word disciple, and that it's a guiding. And the parents expressed their intention through this discipline to guide the child into behavior that would serve her as a young adult and as an adult. And they did have a concern about whether she would wind up going to jail. That's what they expressed. How should we look at the mark that was left on Margaret? Uh, Court of Appeals says that uh, it was a temporary mark, uh, but on the other hand, it was a mark nonetheless, along with other indications uh, that corporal punishment may arguably have been excessive. How should the court look at that? So one of the useful portions of the statute on that is that the uh, punishment or, or the, the uh, harm has to be caused intentionally or uh, I've forgotten the exact phrasing of the by other than accidental means and what the explanation was is that it was an accident that she was moving as many children will when they're being spanked and that her back was hit this is completely different from some of the other cases that the appellants have asked the court to rely on. For example, um, LTR and SG were cited. Well, LTR, when you're looking at all of the facts, you look at the age, the intention, the type of punishment, and the result. So LTR was one that was cited. That was a 2007 case, and these are all court of appeals cases. It involved a four-year-old child, a younger child. It involved a six-inch bruise that a doctor testifies was at least seven days old when it was seen and photographed. Um, the stepfather had hit that child with the brush, and there was an, also a, a second child in that instance who was five years old and had a bruise on the face. On SG, which was the other case that uh, was cited to this court, it was a three-year-old child, again, a vast age difference, and that child had a black eye from his father pushing him down and hitting him, plus bruises on his forehead, an eyelid, and a knot on his forehead. I can't tell you how to look at individual marks because all of the case law in this says you have to uh, exercise a fact-specific inquiry. The trial court looks at a fact-specific inquiry, and in reviewing 
this court and the Court of Appeals does the same thing. What before, was the age of the child? Before your so time forth. runs out, and, and I respect the fact that you may have other things to say, but I, I didn't want to go towards this visitation aspect of the Court of Appeals regarding what the Court of Appeals has ordered in terms of the trial court must order upon remand generous and increasing visitation between Margaret and her mother. Why does not that determination invade the province of the trial court in terms of determining whether or not visitation would be appropriate upon remand? I, I am not sure that it does not invade the province of the trial court. Are you conceding that it does? I would like to see it as an expression of opinion by the Court of Appeals of what would be best that the parents and Margaret were entitled to have visitation with each other. And I would concede that I think that language goes farther than the appellate court should have um, gone in directing how the trial court would set that up. Now these children have been out, I believe, um, I believe Margaret, she was nine when, when they were removed from the home and she, no visitation for any of these children for the last uh, three years. I believe she either just turned or is about to turn uh, 14, 13. 13. Well, while the lack of visitation totally uh, certainly is uh, much more within the standard purview of the Court of Appeals, uh, it sounds like you're agreeing that the Court of Appeals saying that the trial court must give generous and even increasing visitation, as in not even determining what may happen upon the initial in, uh, visitations, but now to say that it will be increasing in the future, uh, you do see that being excessive by the Court of Appeals. At best, an expression of hope of what might be possible for this family. And given the time lapse and the lack of any contact, I would not ask this court to order this, or to uh, enter an order that says the same thing. The trial court should, so much time has passed with no contact. So I'm not asking this court to, to recommend the exact same thing. I think the trial court really has to deal with that at this point. I think unless the court has any further questions, I would simply repeat Mr. Cole's request that you find the discretionary view is improvidently granted and in the alternative, that you affirm the Court of Appeals, perhaps with the modification about visitation. Thank you. Thank you, Council. Rebuttal. I'm happy I'm not gonna sound like I'm talking like a speed demon, but there's a lot of things I wanna to get to. So one, there was no admission that hearsay was received the trial court. Um, I think my brief covers that. The, the statements of Margaret were received for the purposes of explaining, explaining <coughs> subsequent conduct. We did not admit hearsay was received. But, but then, the sorry, I know you want to go quickly, but, but then given that position, then you would also agree that the findings of fact that recite that information can only be taken as laying the groundwork. They can't be Correct. Okay. Absolutely correct. Um, now, um, I think it's very clear. We've made our legal, our, our, our concerns about how we believe that the Court of Appeals erred legally very clear in our briefs. I don't think there's any basis for saying we have a cite in the error of law. Um, now, um, the, basically, if you're looking at, I think there's a lot of, um, 
you know, different characterizations of the findings of fact. And, you know, I think that's more or less, I'm asking this for the evidence, is asking this court to sit in the position of a trier of fact. But if you look at what the Court of Appeals um, found in its, or, or stated in its opinions, his background, second paragraph, respondent mother acknowledged she disciplined Margaret for lying and being untruthful um, about following directions by having her sleep on the floor, allowing her to, up to eat only crunchy peanut butter sandwiches, having her stand in the corner at, um, at home for long periods, and then also prohibiting her from watching the TV or playing outside, which we do not claim is you know, inappropriate. And the respondent, and having respondent father, it says administer corporal punishment, but again, the evidence is clear that he, he whipped her with a belt. But I mean, this issue of, you know, is she only eating crunchy peanut butter sandwiches? The Court of Appeals indicates that, yes, and it's, and it's just background information, paragraph two, and, and no one challenged that. Um, so, and again, I think the evidence is very, very clear that it, this went on for a period of time. We, you know, the mother said it went on for about two months, starting about 2019, almost every day. Do we know exactly how many days? No, but almost every day I think says enough. So you're talking about the, the case law of, of abuse. I think my brief covers that pretty well. I mean, I, you know, Scott versus, Scott versus Scott was based on Mickle, in Ray Mickle. In Ray Mickle was a case that was decided under a version of the abuse statute that was repealed in 1999. Um, that version required the courts to, it was basically a serious bodily injury standard, you know, substantial risk of death, permanent disfigurement, um, you know, permanent injury. Um, so, and that was repealed and replaced by what we have now. And so, Mickle was decided under an, a statute that had been repealed in 1999. Scott just simply recited Mickle almost in dicta because Scott was involving a totally different case, Chapter 50, a motion to modify custody, and was trying to set aside a finding of fact that the mother did not use inappropriate discipline. And as we all know, if the trial court's findings are supported by competent evidence, they're upheld on appeal. So that's almost like, that doesn't stand for the proposition that the Court of Appeals cited it for. Um, and I think HH, I think, clarifies that. I think that's the opinion that best clarifies just the misinterpretation of the law. Because HH went through those cases, and HH said, for example, Mickle was decided under a superseded statute. Um, you know, and then the other cases, it goes through other cases that were cited in the briefs and says, these cases only involved prong one of the abuse definition and not two or three. I don't know, I think they said it involved one or two, but not three, the inappropriate discipline. Inappropriate discipline is a reasonable parent standard. So the question here is would a reasonable parent, you know, basically force feed or only feed the child crunchy peanut butter sandwiches for a long period of time? You know, would a reasonable parent make the child every day just about stand in a corner? You know, would a reasonable child whip the child with a reasonable parent whip the child with a belt for lying and do this repeatedly? You know, it's a reasonable parent parent standard, and I think that's where you have to defer to the trial court in determining what is a reasonable parent standard. But I submit, no, it's it's not reasonable for a parent to do that. Um, I, I think it's very clearly not reasonable. Um, the father, I mean, the fact that the father cannot to this day um, admit that these disciplinary practices are inappropriate, although given plenty of chances to do that, I think it's very probative that, you know, it's exactly what the trial court found. They won't admit anything is wrong. And then adding on to quickly, CPS history, that's another reason to support the adjudications of neglect for the other children. Margaret was found to be neglected, uh, found to be abused and neglected at the age of four months in Guilford County, and no one objected to the Guilford County CPS evidence coming in at the trial court. I don't think I have anything else. Thank you, counsel. Thank you. Thank you, everyone.
Council, we're going to try something a little different, uh, hopefully starting a new tradition of our court, and we'll come down and thank you for your participation in today's oral argument.